All right, good afternoon. We're in the book of 2 Timothy. If you're a guest with us, my name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been studying through 1 Timothy. We've now gone into 2 Timothy. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege pastor, uh, Timothy. And so if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, man, this is our gift to you. Take it, keep it. Read it. It's about Jesus. That's the, that's, the, that's the code. That's how you detect what the Bible's about. It's about Jesus. He said it's, it's about him. So every verse that you read, every story you hear, think about how does this connect to the, the person and work of Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about him today. It's why we've gathered to worship Jesus. And so 2 Timothy, before we get into chapter, uh, the, chapter 1, Verse 16 through 18, or sorry, verse 6 through 18, that's where we'll be today. Before we get there, the context here, I want us to remember, this is Paul's last letter. The Apostle Paul's last letter to Timothy. This is not just his last letter to Timothy, but his his last letter, period. He's about to be executed and murdered for being a Christian. That's where he's going. He's in prison. This will be the last New Testament book he writes. Timothy is about to enter into a hostile uh, culture with the death of Paul. will will create uh, persecution that will spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so Paul is not only uh, writing his last final words to Timothy to encourage him, to instruct him, to uh, give him some, uh, some, some courage to endure what is coming, but also he wants Timothy to see that he is an example of one who's fought the good fight of faith, who finishes well. He wants Timothy to do the same. Uh, the church that he's, uh, Timothy's pastoring is in, a, is in a town and city called Ephesus. This is not a, uh, a Christian environment. This is a, a big city, you know, progressive culture. They don't love Jesus. They don't, they're killing Christians. Uh, it's ruled by the Roman Empire. This is a pagan world. Uh, they're sexually deviant. They're morally deviant. They are just out of their mind, kind of like the United States of America right now. This is, uh, this is uh, the reality. Uh, the church that Timothy is pastoring in is in a context uh, similar to ours. Here's the reality. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. You can't re- reinvent anything new. It's already happened. So the, the times that we live in, the places you find yourself in, the work environment you live in, the, the neighborhoods you find yourself, the, the community you're a part of, nothing that happens is really new under the sun. It's just a, another rendition of, of something that has happened prior. And we've, we know from the beginning when we studied Genesis that sin has in, infected and affected everyone. And so sin is, is, is in the hearts of, of mankind. We are sinners by nature, uh, meaning we inherited it from uh, Adam and Eve. And we are sinners by choice, meaning we continue to sin and rebel against God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he has for us, he has sent his son, the Savior. And so uh, Paul is excited about that man, the God-man Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so he's going to start here to, to encourage Timothy. And the first thing he's going to tell us and the first thing we need to know is that there is a need for a bold, spirit-filled witness in Timothy's day and in our day. This is what we need. We need a bold, spirit-filled witness. The church needs to be a bold, spirit-filled witness. You and I need to be bold, spirit-filled witnesses in the current culture and climate we find ourselves in. So verse 6 of chapter 1 says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us the spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and in self-control. This hostile environment that, that Timothy finds himself pastoring in, 
He, we saw in 1 Timothy that he's, he's addressing heretics. He's, he's, he's addressing false teachers, people who are coming to the church trying to lead others astray. And so he, we already, Timothy already knows that there is a real war on the, the gospel of Jesus. And, and so Paul is writing to him and he tells him that he needs to use the gifts that God has given him for that cultural moment. He needs to use his gifts. He needs to use his gifts. He says they've been given to him through the laying on of hands. It's probably his, his, his ordination service when Paul appointed him, laid hands on him, blessed him. Uh, this, these are gifts given to him by the Holy Spirit. Every single one of you in here, if you know, love, and trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit has given you unique gifts. Not all of them are the same. If they were, then... You know, we'd all be standing somewhere preaching somewhere, right? This is, this, is, this is not, we don't all have the same gifts. That's a good thing. It's like a body part. You can't have, you know, you know eight hands. It'd be ineffective. Uh, that's why you have two hands and two feet, because sometimes you can use your feet as hands if you're really good at certain things. So this is a reality that we live in that you cannot, you, the gifts that God has given his church must be used. They must be stewarded. They must be cultivated. They must be used, especially in a day in which there's hostility and pressure from the church to cave and to fold. God is inviting all of his children to use their gifts. He says to fan them into flame. Specifically to Timothy, he's saying, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. I, I love smoking, cooking meat. Um, I smoking meat. Uh, never mind. Um, and so there's, these, there's a time in which you're, you're cooking. And I know some people uh, like uh, gas grills. That's totally cool. But I love using fire. I love fire. I love uh, to, to cook over, over fire. Charcoal or wood fire, I love it. This, this past Friday, we were hungry for wings. Uh, I, our family, we eat 70 wings at a time, uh, so you can't go to a wing stop or anything without taking out a loan. So we, just, we have to cook them ourselves. So 70 wings on the grill Friday, uh, and I, I was teaching my son how to keep the fire going. The, the, the fire uh, starts to die out, and there's just these hot coals, these hot embers, and I wanted a, a larger fire. And so what we did was we opened, uh, opened it up, and we, we blew onto these, these coals, these hot Red hot embers, and we blew onto them. And then what ended up happening is a flame erupts. So those of you who know uh, what I'm talking about have a really good image. Those of you who don't, when you see a fire going out, if you give it a little oxygen, blow on it a little bit, uh, it'll, it'll fan into flame. You could use your hand to fan it. You can use your mouth. You could even use some sort of uh, fan or tunnel uh, uh, or to create um, airflow to the fire, and it will burst back into flames. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Your gifts, if you don't use them, they will die out. They need to be fanned in the flame. Additionally, he is saying that, that there's a time where, where you could be using your gifts, exercising your gifts. You could be loving, serving the church according to your giftedness, like Timothy is likely already doing. And he's exhausted. He's tired. He needs refreshment. He needs to be fanned in the flame so he can be effective for what God has called him to. The principle here remains not just for Timothy's gifts, but for all of our giftings, that they need to be strengthened, they needed to be tended to, they need to be uh, encouraged, and they need to, they're like a muscle that if you don't use, they, it will atrophy. And so my question to you is your giftedness. Are you aware of how God has gifted you? 
Are you using your gifts, your talents, your time to serve the church of Jesus? Not just on Sundays, but on mission in every sphere in which God has called you to. Is your, are your gifts waning like a, a, an ember, like the, the, where it needs to be fanned into flame? And I hope by God's grace, by the Spirit of God today, that if that is you, that would be so. Or some of you who, who have been zealous for, for good works, zealous for faith in Jesus, and you, for, for a long time you've been, you've been kind of uh, downcast in your, in your zeal. You've been uh, discouraged maybe because of life or circumstances, and you find yourself today weary needing to be uplifted, needing to be encouraged. May you be encouraged by the Spirit of God to not just sit and sulk and wait, but to as you are waiting for God to renew your spirit, that you would step out. Let the, the wind of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, lift your sails as He's in, in, in you play a part of where God has called you. He says, he says it this way, fan in the flame the gift of God. Will you do that? How are you wired? Do you understand that? Do you know how you're wired? How has God made you? How can you play a part of Christ's mission here in this city? Will you be willing to join Jesus on mission? He says in verse 7, he says, God has given us. If you're a Christian, this is true for you. God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. See, Christians have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. And the Spirit of, of God is one of, of not of fear. It's one of faith. It's one that produces power, love, and self-control. See, the Greek word here for fear literally means, and it is used in, in and not just in the, in the New Testament, but in extra-biblical resources as well. When this Greek word is used in literature all over, it typically means that it's, this, this term is one who flees from battle. It has a very, and this, is, this may offend some people, uh, but this is in the Bible. It has a strong pejorative meaning. It means coward. It means coward. Paul is literally saying God has not given you his spirit to be a coward. He's not given you the spirit of cowardice. He's given you the spirit of boldness. This is what is being said here. Boldness, not cowardice, is a mark of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the early parts of Acts. Paul oftentimes prays and, and, and he asks the church to pray for him as well, that he would be given a spirit of boldness when he proclaims the gospel because he says it often and frequently. That is how it ought to be proclaimed, is with boldness, not cowardice. Our world, our world is led by cowards. Our world is led by cowards. Some of you know that all too well, but we, we are led so often and so frequently by cowards. Spineless cowardice leads and rules the world today. It's the spirit of the age. It's the same, it comes from the same spineless serpent who was the first coward, Satan, in the Garden of Eden, who got kicked out of the heavenly courts because of his his unwillingness to submit to Jesus as Lord. And so he went behind his back, gathered a bunch of people, rose up an army of angels to rebel against the perfect God. And he went, and what did he do? He started recruiting humans, Adam and Eve, the, our first parents, 
to not just disobey God, but to think he was a liar, that God was a liar. The serpent was the liar. To doubt God, to think that God was withholding from them, to to lead them in rebellion. And then guess what? After they sinned, what happened? They were cowards. They hid from God, who was loving, patient, kind. How many of you, when you sin, you run and hide from God? When we do this, we are, we have, we've adopted the spirit of cowardice, the spirit of the age, which Paul tells us is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to Christ, leads us to our Father, helps us see that we have been, he is merciful, he is gracious, he has forgiven us. There's nothing that we can do to out-sin the love of Christ, but the serpent, the spirit of the age, makes us think that because of our sin, that there's such a, a wave of shame that should wash over us, that should make us hide like cowards from God. Then it affects how we live. We're, we have secret lives that play out in real life. And this is why no one in our day will admit that they were wrong, because they're cowards. I don't care which political party you are. They're riddled with cowards. Men who, when wrong, won't say it. They won't repent publicly. They will condemn another for not doing that, but they themselves continue in this same folly and folly and ruin that they point out in others. This is not the spirit of the living God. This is the spirit of the serpent, the spirit of the coward. God has given you not a spirit of fear, to fear man, to fear circumstances, to fear. He's given you the spirit of power, love, and self-control. Power, not your power, not worldly power, not, not, this is heaven's power. He's not given you the spirit of, 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 of simply a, a, a worldly sense of understanding power. He's talking about God's power. It's a power that you cannot get from anyone else but the spirit. It's the, it's the, when Paul tells the Corinthians, I came to you preaching the raw, stripped down gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified in your place for your sins. He says that is the power of God. He came demonstrating power. Power is when you hear God's word and receive it or you read God's word and you're like, man, he just spoke to me. He cut to the heart, my heart. He, the, the Bible exposed my sin. I'm reading God's word and it it reminded me of my need for a savior. We're told that through Galatians that the entire Old Testament was a tutor leading us to Christ. It's the, the power of God. The love is not whatever you define love as. The spirit doesn't let you define love. The spirit doesn't, you know, get you, let you go, well, I hurt my feelings, that's not loving. God defines love. And there are things about God's love that hurt our feelings. Namely, that we're wrong and we need help. How many of you don't like to ask for help? You really don't like to ask for help. You'd rather do it wrong a bunch of times. Guys, I'm talking to you. You know, like you're fixing a project. Like you don't even want to read the directions. And afterwards, you don't want anyone to know that you actually looked it up on YouTube. Because you want to tell everyone, like, I fixed it. How would you do it well? And then for sure there's a wave of shame if you figured out how to fix something on TikTok, right? That is, that is biblical, right? If you learn how to fix something on TikTok, like, you don't want to tell anyone that. That's, that's, that's real. 
See, God's love is not what we add into or define ourselves. God has defined it. 1 Corinthians 13 goes to links to explain what God's love is. One of the things that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 about God's perfect love is that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. In our world, we say that wrongdoing should be celebrated. We say that wrongdoing should get a month. We say that wrongdoing should be you know, proclaimed. We say that if, you, if you're against wrongdoing, then you are a narrow-minded bigot. That is not the love that he is speaking to. He's talking about the love of God that does not rejoice. One of the things it does, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. He says also that this, the Spirit gives us not fear, but self-control. This is a God-given restraint. Because, Timothy, this world that you live in, to be a bold witness, there's going to be a lot of hostility. There's going to be people say things negatively about you. We're going to find out later that people have abandoned Paul. They've said all types of, of wicked things about him, and they've left him alone, isolated, defriended him, no longer want to be associated with him. He says things like that are going to happen to you, Timothy. But you need a God-given restraint, a patience, a self-control. It comes from the Holy Spirit. This is our day. This is Timothy's day. He's, God is calling us to be the type of people who are courageous, filled with the Spirit, who use the gifts that God has given us to love and serve one another. And together, by fanning those things in the flame, we become a blazing fire for the world to see. Next, he says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Verse 8, therefore, because of that, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So many Christians today are ashamed of Jesus. The stripped down, the, the raw, the real, the what the Bible says, that Jesus. They're ashamed of that Jesus. They're ashamed of him. They're ashamed of him. People will claim they're not, but they edit him. If you edit God's word or change what Jesus has meant through the scriptures, then you are ashamed of him. And so in our day, Jesus says there's one way to salvation. One way. In our day, we say, no, there's multiple ways. In a Pew Research study, there was a, in, in, in a few years ago, 2020, there, or 2021, there was a, it said that the majority of Christians, 64% of Christians, self-identified Christians, 64% of people who claimed to be Christian, 64% of them said there is, it didn't matter which religion you had, any path leads to God. Salvation can be in Islam, it can be in Buddhism, it can be anywhere. It can be an atheism. It doesn't matter. As long as you have faith in something, that's good enough. 64% of Christians, that's not a Christian thing. Jesus says there's one way, one way, that you can only be saved through one way. Now, it's the most exclusive thing a person could say. we got to admit that. Jesus says one way, but it's also the most inclusive thing because he says anyone can come. Anyone it doesn't matter your sin, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you've been in your life, where you grew up, what planet or what uh, area of the planet you, 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 you find yourself in. If you come through Jesus, you can be saved, anyone. But in our world, we don't like that. We say that's very narrow-minded. And Jesus says that's a narrow way. That's what he says. It's a narrow way. 
Our world is ashamed of sin. We don't like to be called sinners. We don't like it when people say that we're sinners. See, the reason is, is because we don't understand the mercy and grace of God. We were literally just in a prayer meeting right before this started, and there were, we were talking about the, the, the length to which Jesus went to save us. The more we understand the, the magnitude of our sin, the more we understand the magnitude of his mercy. What are you ashamed of? What, do you, what is in your mind that if, man, if they knew this about me, then, then they would reject me? Jesus looked upon that and said, I want that man, I want that woman in my family, and I will pay the penalty for them to be in my family with my life. He didn't look at you in shame. He looked at you and said, I want you. I will take your shame. But our world doesn't like that. It doesn't like the, the reality of sin. Or hell. Jesus spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven. Spoke of sin more than any other one in, in, in any, any author. Gender is binary. God said it back in, in Genesis. Jesus reiterates it twice through the Gospels. That we are created male and female. But in our world today, we don't like that either. We're ashamed of that Jesus. We're ashamed of the one way to, to the salvation. We're, we're ashamed of the, the sin-atoning Savior. We're ashamed of the, the reality that if you reject him, that you, might, you will spend eternity apart from him in the torment of hell. We, we are ashamed of the Jesus who says that there is two genders and that it is binary. And God made it that way and so you can't choose. We're ashamed of that Jesus. We're ashamed that Jesus says that sex is between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. No other. We're ashamed that Jesus says that marriage is only between man and a woman. We're ashamed of that Jesus. And we'll say this, that the, the, the thought that you would constrain sex or sexuality to these small binary groups is narrow-minded and unfulfilling. And that you are robbing people of dignity and robbing people of joy. Hear me this, Jesus was a virgin and was the happiest man who ever lived. Sex is not the way to happiness. Jesus is the way to happiness. In his presence, we're told through the Psalms, is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand, we're told are pleasures forevermore. We're, sit, we're fighting the wrong fights. Jesus is the one who defines it all. Submission to him is abundant life. Jesus was a, a blue-collar dude, not a rich guy. He was without sin, yet he hung out with sinners. That used to be what offended people. That used to be what made people ashamed of Jesus, that he was rolling around with the, the sinners and the tax collectors. He was going to the party, and instead of you know, showing up empty-handed, he showed up with the good wine. Not just a little bit of wine. He showed up with a lot of wine, so much wine that people you know, had to get an Uber to get home. Like That, that Jesus, no one, oh, well, they're ashamed of him. Baptists especially, right? They, they, don't, they don't like that, Jesus. He kept the party going with alcohol. Or when he was hanging around sinners and tax collectors, they said to him, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He was eating the food, and he was with the, with the sinners and tax collectors, and he was, he was drinking the drink with them, and, and he's, he, they called him a, a glutton and a drunkard. They said he overate and, and overdrank, not because he did, but because he hung around people who do. So they were, they were ashamed of Jesus because, you know, you, you become like who you hang around. 
Jesus was bad company. He was hanging around with the sinners. See, both sides of the aisle find ways to be ashamed of Jesus. To be ashamed of Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy here, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of what Jesus has said. Do not be ashamed of what he has done. What, do not be ashamed of anything that Jesus has done or said. His, his, don't be ashamed of him as a person. Don't be ashamed of him as a messenger. Don't be ashamed of his message. Don't be ashamed of his work. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He will, he will offend. He will confuse. He will redefine realities for people. And so we'll be quick to, to judge Jesus. We'll be quick to be ashamed of Jesus when he doesn't fit in our little worldview. Never, never, he says, be ashamed of Jesus. You can be ashamed of things you've done. I'm ashamed of things I've done. I'm ashamed of things I've done. But I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the person of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the work of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the message of Jesus. Why? Because the message of Jesus is one of, give me your shame, Al. Give me your sin, Al. Give me your shortcomings. Give me your flaws. Give it all to me. And let me remove your shame. Let me remove your guilt. The reason why this message is offensive is because it means that we have to give up. Give up things that when we realize, when Jesus calls it a sin and we don't like that, we have to give it up. We don't like that. He loves us unconditionally. But when he claims lordship over our life, he demands obedience. He demands repentance. And when we fall short, there's enough mercy and grace to keep covering our sin. But Jesus wants us completely. He wants to take us. He wants to transform us. He doesn't want to keep us the same, though he, he accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul, the same writer here, says this. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. That's what he says. He's not, it's not you plus the gospel. It's not a really cool sermon plus the gospel. It's not a, the preacher wore some cool outfit plus the gospel. It's not I said all the words right to my friends and neighbors and, and I just I had the right packaging of the gospel and that's going to save them. No, it doesn't take anything plus the gospel. It only takes the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. That means that you don't have to do anything other than tell it. It's literally called gospel because it means good news. It's news. You just share it. You know like you share posts on, on the internet? Like just share like what the information was? It's what you're doing. You're sharing the gospel. You're sharing the person, sharing the work. You're sharing the message of Jesus as defined by the scriptures. And when you do, it saves people. 
Far too often we have people and preachers and those who will, who will come to God's word and they will edit the gospel and proclaim an edited gospel and they wonder why there's not salvation and power. People are having fun and they like the pastor. There's a lot of retweets and there's a lot of YouTube traffic. But there's not abiding life change. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to save. And then he says, don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner, the preacher of this message. Paul is not ashamed, and therefore he preaches, and therefore he is in prison. Next, he says, share in suffering for the gospel. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but share in its suffering. And this is the Bible for you. If you came here and you're like, man, I really need something, some encouragement. This is the encouragement God wants you to have today. It's encouragement if you'll, if you'll receive it. It's encouragement. Share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Like, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. See, here's the reality. If you preach a, a frank, honest gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the one that got him killed the one that's going to get the Apostle Paul killed, eventually, somewhere, someone's not going to like it. Someone's not going to like it. And so you might be rejected. You might be mistreated. You might just have awkward dinners with your family over Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't know what it will be for you. But he's saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but proclaim it. And then... Share in sufferings as they come because of the gospel. People might mistreat you. People might abandon you. People, people might be ashamed of you. That's not, I don't know how many times I've heard that one. Some of you feel, Al, I'm ashamed of you because of the things I've said. That, that I just repeated Jesus. You're just ashamed. can't believe that's the type of church you are. These are oftentimes from people who were once zealous that did not fan into flame the gifting. They didn't suffer well. Paul is encouraging Timothy to suffer well. Like I said before, Paul often asks for the church to pray for him and pray for boldness, that he would proclaim the message as it ought to be. He understands. Why does Paul pray that? Why would he pray for the church to and ask the church to pray for him to have boldness if he wasn't prone to cowardice. He's prone to, not, to wanting to shrink back. He's prone to not wanting to lead forward with the gospel. He's prone to wanting to water things down. He's prone to, he's a, he's a prone to do the very things we do and just shrink back in fear. So he asked the church to pray that he'd be bold. And then when he is bold, what happens? They, they go after him. They write hit pieces about him. They, the news gets, gets after him. They put him in prison. They later throw stones at him trying to kill him. Eventually, they hang him. He says, suffer, share in suffering for the gospel. But he says, do so by the power of God. Paul is not relying on his own strength. He says it frequently that he boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on him. What you and I need in this age, in this day, to not be ashamed and to share well in suffering and to not give up and be a bold, spirit-filled witness is we need the power of God. 
We need the good news of the gospel. We need the spirit of God on us. And so that comes from the same message you first believed. And here it is. He continues. Salvation is by grace alone. This gives you strength to endure. This message right here. This message right here. So if, you're, if you need strength, hear this. The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, Christ Jesus. This is the news. This is the power. This is what he is not ashamed about. And it is this, that salvation comes by faith and grace alone. By grace alone. He says, not because of our works. This is offensive for those who think that, hey, if I just do a bunch of good things, God will accept me. Some of my best friends, some of my best friends who are, who are uh, Muslim and so they, they are a part of the religion of Islam have yelled at me in anger and frustration when I say these things that you can only be saved by grace. Your works cannot inherit salvation. They're like, but Al, all the things I've done, all the fasting I've done, all the non-pork I've not eaten, and all the, the pilgrimages I've made to Mecca, and all the prayers I have prayed, surely this is enough and it is not. It is not. The Christian version of this is, I grew up in church, I got baptized as a baby, and, you know, then they, I went to church every single day, and, you know, they saw I got to go through first communion, second communion, all the communions, I took it all, and then I went to this class, that class, and vacation Bible school was really good. I even visited some other churches, and, man, those were great, youth camp, summer camp, this camp, that camp, youth group, Awanas, everything, all, the, all of us just kind of grew up around Christians and, you know, we, we, we voted Republican, we did all these things, and surely God must love me. I'm a Christian after all. Look at my voting track record. Look at my at- church attendance track record. Look how many verses I can quote. Look at all these things. You're like, I, I'm saved because of these. Are, I'm saved because of this. No, you're not. You're not can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not because of works. What it means, what this means is it's a gift that you just simply must receive. That Jesus has died in the place of sinners, died for your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, all the sins in the entire world, took the punishment and penalty on himself, was crucified, murdered, dead. After three days, he rose victoriously, conquering Satan, sin, death, and the grave. That's the news. Receive it. If you say, that's my sin that Jesus died for, and therefore he's my savior, that's salvation. That's salvation. It's simply you gotta receive it. Some of you here today, have you received it? Just, I agree with that. I agree. Jesus took my place for my sins, died, rose again, and he is the only one who can do it. My sin, my Savior. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Do you see my sin, my Savior? Or do you see someone else's sin, someone else's Savior? Or some of you, you see my sin, my Savior, not them. Not those people. Not the people I don't like. Misunderstanding of the gospel as well. This is the message. This is the message. Jesus came to save sinners. He alone can save you. Put your faith 
in the one who has conquered sin, Satan, death, and the grave. Receive it. That's the only way to salvation. And therefore, you will then be made alive. That's what's next. He says, who abolished death. Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you know, love, and trust Jesus, you've been made alive. If you've heard that proclamation, the news that Jesus stood your place for your sins and said, yes, I believe. My sin, my Savior. You are saved, but now you are not dead spiritually, but you've been made alive. You're alive. Meaning death cannot stop God. Meaning if you die, you will be with him in his presence forever. You will be, you are immortal. You will live in the presence of your Savior now because his spirit dwells in you and forevermore. This is salvation. This is the news. This is why Paul says, I don't care if you kill me. I don't care if you imprison me. I can't stop saying this. This is the only way to change not people, not only people's lives now, but eternally. This message that Jesus stood their place for their sins. They can't be saved by works. They must be saved by grace. He proclaims it. He doesn't edit it. He says, that message for which I was appointed preacher. So he preaches it. An apostle and teacher. He says, which is why I suffer as I do. It's amazing. Some of you will read this. It's amazing that that message would make someone want to call suffering on, on an individual. But if you, it's not just the message, it's what the message means. It means that there's one way, there's one God, there's one hope, there's one salvation. In a pluralistic spiritual world that we live in, that's offensive to say there's only one way. But he says, I'm not ashamed. He's already said, you don't be ashamed, Timothy. But he says, now I am not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. He says he's not ashamed. Why? Because he knows his Savior. This is why so many people I don't, who become ashamed of Jesus because they don't know him. They don't know their Savior. This week, I, and this, I often do this. I get away for a time of silence and solitude. This, this week, this last Thursday, I spent a whole day, went to this retreat center, just me, in silence. And I went back through every single thing I believe. The gospel, went to the text and just reread it. Additionally, the mission of our church the vision of our church? What does discipleship mean? And just ask the question, God, like, are we doing what has been revealed and what you're calling us to? Are we doing this thing? Because I'm looking around, and there's a lot of people who are saying different things. And a lot of people who have come to me and just asked that we would tone it down or edit this or don't say it like that. And I'm just asking God, am I missing it? Am I missing it? I love you, Jesus. I love your word. I want to, I want to just, I want to steward this Calling well. I want to steward it well. And I journaled and I wrote out and I just began to connect ver- all the verses. Just, and then I was just, I left there going, I'm more utterly convinced than I ever have about the, the gospel of Jesus and its power to save, the mission of the church, and what we're going to do. And it's in, I'm going to get louder, I'm going to get prouder. 
in God's sense, and just herald this good news. And if you silence us, you dislike us, you just get offended, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Because I would rather be, offend you than offend God. And I walked out of there just grieving so many people I know who've left the faith. So many people I know who were once on fire. But you look at the, the fire is gone. The embers are cold. It's just ash. He knows in whom he believes. I know in whom I believe. Do you know in whom you believe? He has revealed himself. Anytime you read a verse that you're like, ah, I don't really like that one. The problem is not God, it's you. The problem is not your interpretation or what some scholar that has a bunch of degrees that, that speaks languages that no one else does. And, and they say this, something weird and strange because, you know, all these people, 2,000 years of history, got it wrong and he finally got it right. That guy is not the expert. That guy is an editor. He edits the word of God. If there's any new information about Jesus or Christianity that's somehow hitting your, your uh, phone or your you know, you know, space in which you were consuming media, you know, and this is something new. It's, it's, no one has ever said it in 2,000 years of history. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's nothing new. It's been revealed. Know the God of the Scripture. Know Jesus. Be so convinced about who he is. And I think more now than ever our day, we need to be totally consumed by God's word in, in ample amount more than we ever have because we are consumed with so much other media, so many other voices speaking into our lives. We need to be reminded of his word. He says next is, who you follow matters. Follow the pattern of the sound words in which you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He says, follow the pattern of sound words, Timothy. The sound words that you've heard from me. Guess where those words are? Bound in a book. We call it the Bible. This is it. This is it. The sound words. They're right here. Follow them. Follow them. Obey them. Do them. Love them. Don't turn from them. Memorize them. Hold tight to them. He then says, guard them. Guard them. Guard the good deposit, which he's referring to the message of the gospel. Guard this message with the power of the Holy Spirit. Defect, or protect it. Defend it. Don't water it down. Don't edit it. Proclaim it. Guard it. Keep it. Follow it. Obey it. This is how we know the God in whom we believed. We follow the, the words that he has given. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. But he doesn't live by bread, doesn't live by food alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The book, the Holy Spirit wrote it. If you are not reading, consuming God's word frequently, daily, you are not only harming yourself, but you are willfully allowing someone else to dictate the pattern of life you will live. We don't live in a neutral world. Everything you watch, everything you listen to, everything you consume, everything has an agenda and is leading you towards some version of, quote, salvation. 
The question is, are you able to discern, walk through, and know your God through the trials and through the life that you live? With, and you cannot without the word of God. Therefore, the word of God must be protected. It must be preached. It must be held on to. It must be followed. False teachers in Paul's day will lead many astray. False teachers of our day will lead many astray. You measure everything I say by the book. Anything I say that is against the word of God, throw it away. But anything I say that is of the word of God, anything that we see through the scriptures that has been revealed and clear and and proclaimed, you are now accountable to it. If you walk out of here and dishonor it, disobey it, reject it, you're not sinning against me. You're doing that against God. Who you follow matters. Who you follow is who you will become like. Know your God. Know your Bible. Know know the God in whom you believe. Lastly, he says, he describes a scene that may be prophetic for us of, of what faithfulness might look like in an increasingly hostile culture. He says this, You are aware of all that who are in Asia turned away from me, among who are Figilis and Hermogenes, not Hermione, you uh, Harry Potter lovers. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of uh, Onesiphorus, for he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy on, from the Lord on that day. And you know all the service he rendered at, to me at Ephesus. Paul is describing a scene that he has been faithfully proclaiming God's word in a city, in a, in a culture, in a whole region of Asia. And he says, Timothy, I know you're aware of all those who have turned from me. All those who turned from me. He says they're ashamed of me. So Paul told Timothy already, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm not, a, he says he himself is not ashamed of Jesus and not ashamed of the gospel. He knows the God in whom he believes. He's saying now here's the result. There will be people who are ashamed of you because of this message. They are ashamed of me because of this message I proclaim. There's two reasons why they're probably ashamed. Number one, they're ashamed because they don't want to associate with that type of radical Christian, that narrow-minded, that bigoted Christian, that Christian who says what the Bible actually says and doesn't apologize for it. That type of Christian rubs people the wrong way. I don't want to be associated with that type of Christian. Give me the church that is really uh, you know, watered down and everyone's happy and no one talks about sin. No, one's, no one gives a, the hard, honest truth. Give me something different. I don't want to be around Paul. I'm ashamed of Paul because he comes off kind of brash, kind of harsh. I don't really like that guy. He's radical. Don't want to be associated with that guy. That's one category. The other category of people are scared that they might, if they, because they believe what Paul says is true, if they told someone, they might end up in the same position Paul is in. They might be in prison too. If they open their mouth and say, I agree with that guy, then they will lose friends too. Oh, I agree with that guy. Then everyone at work kind of looks at you like, oh, really? You're, you're one of those Christians as well? They're fearful of becoming imprisoned like Paul. 
Some of them are ashamed because they, it's not the cultural norm and it's not popular anymore. So we're ashamed of that kind of Paul, that kind of Christianity, that kind of gospel. And others are ashamed because they actually agree with him, but they don't want to end up like him. This is why Paul starts off with the need of the Spirit to empower us for boldness. He talks about two men who have been unfaithful. Just know this. Sometimes we talk in general about churches, talk about in general about certain preaching and certain messages. I've never, I don't think, ever named a person. Paul names two people. Faithless people. I'm just saying. Like, it's biblical. And he names two faithless cowards. He names it. He names them. And he's, they're weird words. They're weird names. So, you know, Figalus and, and Hermogenes. These are the only two times they're mentioned. Like, they're, they're mentioned, like, what if that was you? Like, you get in the Bible, but, like, you're, you're known as the, the coward who disobeyed and who's faithless. Don't be like these guys. This is why he's saying, he's literally telling Timothy, don't be like these two guys. They were ashamed of me, they were, and therefore they were ashamed of the gospel. What the reason is is because Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel, and no matter which category they were in, they were in the ones who were like, no, that's, you went too far, you're too narrow-minded, Paul, or they're in the other categories, like, man, I don't want to end up like him. He's, it has caused them to become faithless. See, here's the reality. There's no private Christianity. There's no private Christianity. Some of you have been told a lie that your faith, especially in our country, is to remain private. But your master, your king, said, go and tell everybody. That was the message of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. Every one of them. Even the ones that don't exist yet. The ones that start up. Every one of them. Teach them to obey. That's what the master said. That is what the master said. And to the degree that we don't, we, we resist his mission is to the degree that we are ashamed of his message. Paul says, don't be unfaithful like these men. Jesus in Luke 9, 26, not only on the screen, but you can remember it. He says this, Jesus' words, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You will either be unashamed and proclaim Jesus as revealed through the scriptures. Or you will be ashamed and edit the gospel. You'll be ashamed and cease to say it because you don't want to end up like Paul or you don't want to end up unliked or you don't want to lose friends. Or you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Or you'll be ashamed because you don't want to end up in prison. Or you'll be ashamed for whatever reason. But if you were ashamed, Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me and what I have said, any of those things, whether it be the way of salvation, whether it be gender, whether it be life, whether it be sin, whether it be hell, if you're ashamed of any of those things, ashamed of me, he says, and my words, I will be ashamed of you. I will be ashamed of you. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. pressures of our day, the pressures of Timothy's day, have caused people 
to be ashamed of Jesus, to be ashamed of his word, to turn from faithful Christians to unfaithful Christians. So I want to encourage everyone here. If you call yourself a Christian, count the cost. Count the cost. What if this is the day coming in which people abandon you? That messengers of the gospel, those who proclaim the gospel, are imprisoned or they're canceled or they're just heaped upon lies by culture. You know, being called a Christian used to be a derogatory statement. There's a new term. I don't know it yet. I have some suspicions about what they're going to call us in the future. But they're going to call us these names to try to, make, to try to make other people think that we're not the kind of Christians the Bible proclaims. But no one will read the book so they'll never know. And one day it may be true that people who hear the message, the words like Jesus, when he says, hey, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. They're going to not my Jesus. I don't believe in that. And so you are going to be pressured to change. My encouragement to us in closing is this. Count the cost. Don't just give your life to Jesus, but give him your reputation. See, in our day, we've given him our life, we've given him our sin, we've given him everything, and that's okay, so we can just be quiet, hungry, or well-fed, comforted until Jesus returns, and we don't have to deal with the crazies out there. We can just hunker down and just wait for Jesus to return. No. That's called shame. You're called to proclaim. To proclaim. To tell of that good news in which you believe. In order to do that, you've got to give Jesus your reputation. Who cares what they say about you? Know the God in whom you trust. Additionally, oftentimes you'll hear me, especially in messages like this, you'll think everyone's got to go out on the street corner and be the preacher. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as you have opportunity to to speak, to tell the news of who Jesus is, don't be a coward, but proclaim it. Additionally, be the type of person like Onesiphorus, who was a great encourager to Paul. Paul says he was not ashamed. He wasn't necessarily a preacher, but he was a great encourager and comforter. Right? When Paul was in prison, he wasn't ashamed of that. He wasn't ashamed to be associated with Paul. But he went to him, he searched for him, he looked for him. He's like asking, where's Paul? And they're like, we don't talk to that guy. We don't talk about, you know, Bruno or Paul. And so we, we're not going to tell you. And so he's trying to find out where Paul is because he loves him and he wants to encourage him. And so be like that. Some of you will be called to preach publicly like this. Some of you will be called to share your faith privately, not keep your faith privately internally, but in small groups, small circles, one to two people, over meal, stuff like that. Others of you may, be, uh, will, may, may share your faith in larger groups or in, in one-on-one contexts. We're all called to share our faith in some way, shape, or form. We're also called to be encouragers of those who proclaim it. So this would be like coming into your community group and one person shares like they, and they shared the gospel with their coworker and their coworker, you know, said some evil things about them, said that there are some, some things that hurt their feelings and, or maybe their family member disowned them or dis, like we literally have people in here whose family members because of, uh, of Jesus' words have cut people off or have said harsh, false, evil things about them because of Jesus' words. And so we, they need people to come alongside them, encourage them, and not be ashamed of them and their faith and their God and the scriptures like their other family members might be ashamed of. 
This is why we, we, we share open and honest in our community groups, in our discipleship groups, and we pray for one another, and we encourage one another. Because there's a day coming that the only friends you might have may be in the context of the church. We pray that God starts a revival and that the Spirit of God moves in power and we are set aflame, set ablaze, and we become a city on the hill and many people know, love, and meet Jesus. And to that end, we press, and to that end, we work. And if he does that, praise God. But if he doesn't, may we not cower in fear. May we not abandon the truth. May we not be ashamed of the God in whom we believed. His words, his message, his life, his cross. But be willing to follow him wherever he leads us and comfort and encourage those who are doing the same. Paul ends this with on that day, this term, on that day. On that day. Jesus also talks about on that day when he returns. He'll be in glory with the glory of the Father and the angels. There's a day coming. There is a day coming when Jesus will return. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you've sat here and you've heard this message that it's free. You just simply got to give Jesus your life, your sins, put your faith in him. You look at the cross and say, he died for my sins, therefore he is my savior. If you haven't done that, I plead with you too. I plead with you too. There's been several people in my life recently, young people that have gone to see the Lord. I'm just convinced, I'm just, just want everyone in here to know that you must believe in Jesus. Don't suppress the truth any longer. Look at the cross. See Jesus hanging there in your place for your sins. Believe upon him. Receive salvation. Don't be ashamed of it. Believe in it. Treasure it. Remember it. Glory in it and share it. Church, I plead with you. Know the God in whom you believe. Today, tomorrow, keep believing until he returns. Lord Jesus, bless these men and women unto that end. May we be a people who are not ashamed of of the gospel, not ashamed of not just the message of the gospel, but the implications of the gospel, the words that you have spoken, Jesus, through the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, may we not be ashamed. And may we know the God in whom we believed. Would you empower us, Holy Spirit, to live lives of godliness, benevolent care, sacrifice for others. Empower us to be bold proclaimers of the truth. Empower us to live lives of sacrifice, have lives of self-control, have lives of love defined by your scriptures. Give us not, let us not be given into fear, but may we be strengthened and emboldened unto faith. I pray this in Jesus' name.